Good morning. We'll be reading Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 16, 5. Uh, You'll find that on page 924 of your pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were, who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with us each and every day to preach your word throughout the nations. Thank you, Father, for your sovereignty in all matters, even in disagreements with these brothers and sisters. Please help us to have grace on one another as you have bestowed grace on us, Father. Thank you, Father, for your sovereignty in equipping all the saints as you see fit. Gracious Lord, we ask that you be with us this morning and that you would just reach out and touch our hearts and help us to understand your word as Cody preaches it this morning, Father. We ask that you would be with him. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying that no one likes tension. Uh, Maybe you experience some tension Thursday afternoon or Friday morning. The idea of going somewhere or somebody coming to you and knowing that there might be tension over a meal. I don't think anybody looks forward to that. There's the grand game of tug of war, but nobody really looks forward to that because everybody knows somebody's going to have to lose and we don't want it to be me and the tension of this game. And yet we live in a world that, has, that exists on tension. Uh, I don't float 
up into the air and neither do you because of the, the, the pull, the tension of gravity that God has designed. There's the tension of the seasons and this life of green upon a trees and then there's yet this pull down and, and death that comes to those leaves. Uh, tension is all around us. It's not desired, it's not really loved, and if anything, it's a reminder to us that this world is not our home. We're not really created for tension. Uh, we don't like it. And what, yet, what do we do about it? And does that mean tension is just something that we have to endure and there's no way that God's going to use it and this is a byproduct of the sinful fall of mankind and therefore it's just hopeless from here forward? And of course we would say no. And yet we also see that tension isn't just that which is outside the church, it enters the church as well. And we see it here this morning in our passage, Acts chapter 15, 36 through 16, 5. And I want, to, I want to say clearly from the beginning what I believe this passage is arguing for us. Warren actually just prayed about it, or at least he used a term that I, I want to I press on to, and that is this. God sovereignly builds his church through Christ in his way, on his terms, and in his timing. Now, I'm going to say more about that toward the end. But let me just say right now, that's a glorious statement. And it's disconcerting as all get out. There's days I just hold to that, and there's days I wish it was not true. And yet, and lest you think I'm a heretic in saying that, give me toward the end of the sermon and I'll explain what I mean. But God sovereignly builds his church through Christ in his way on his terms and in his timing. Let's see that in this passage. I have two points. It's very simple, 36 through 41. And then the second point there is 1 through 5 in chapter 16. But let's look at the first point number one, a disagreement. We'll see what happens here, which is, these days, which is days of, of great peace for the church. Uh, Paul is, if you will, on a sabbatical from his first missionary journey. They've had uh, the question of what's taking place within uh, the Antioch and the church in Antioch and whether or not the, the Jews, or excuse me, the, the Gentiles, the new believers there, needed to conform to some of the laws of the Jews. And the answer has been no. Christ has done it all for them. There's no requirements that we need to place upon them. And we looked at it last week, but verse 30 through 35, this church is strengthened, they're encouraged. Many are being preached to and taught. Those are the days. And they were the good old days. Because Paul says to Barnabas, let's return or let's, let's retrace our steps to the churches that were planted along the first missionary journey. Let's proclaim to them the word of the Lord. Let's check in on them. Let's see how they're doing. And that's a good idea. Apparently Barnabas agrees with the general idea of checking in on the churches because we'll see here in a moment he actually goes back and does the same thing though a different direction than Paul goes. Barnabas wants to take with them a young man by the name of John Mark. Well, John Mark was involved in the first missionary journey. He barely made it a third of the way and then he turned back. 
You might, if you will, turn in your Bible back just a few chapters. You'll see there in verse 13 of chapter 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia and John, there's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Well, he, he and his family were well known within the church. You may remember when Peter is uh, sovereignly and gloriously rescued from a jail cell, he ends up at a prayer meeting and the prayer meeting is being hosted by John Mark's mother. He's well known within the church and yet it seems as if uh, he has he has faded on the front lines and turned away. Barnabas, who is his cousin, we know this by way of the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 10. Barnabas, this son of encouragement, wants to take with them yet again John Mark, and yet Paul thought it best not to take him. Verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. I, I, I think it's interesting how the, the Bible puts these terms for us. It doesn't say there arose a disagreement and so they separated from each other. No, this was a sharp one. This was pointed. This hurt. I, I think it's a, a wonder of it all to really uh, set yourself within the context of this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. These are men who had had been on a journey for years with one another in this first missionary journey. These are men who had fought hand-to-hand to see the gospel go forward. These are men who had, who had endured great levels of persecution with one another. Barnabas had witnessed Paul being stoned. Uh, this is an this is intimacy of soul and relationship that only the fire of persecution can bind men together in, in, in this way. This is no small relationship. This is one that has run deep over many, many years. And yet the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to tell the church by way of the writing of the book of Acts of what has taken place here. Why? Why? Why did the early church need to know? I I think we could make some assumption. If the church doesn't know how it all ended out, which we get the privilege of seeing here in a few verses, boy, what hopelessness when they might have a sharp disagreement. Is God really sovereign? What is we going to do with this tension? All the questions that might arise. John Mark, on the front lines, turns, flees, And there's a few things I want to just note for you about this sharp disagreement. First of all, before we even talk about their disagreement, let me just say this. A sharp disagreement in a vacuum is not sin. A sharp disagreement in a vacuum is not sin. I say in a vacuum because sin has had a corrupting effect on all of us. Therefore, it's not in a vacuum. And it's a rare day that we were able to have a sharp disagreement and not sin somehow during our sharp disagreement. Right? So sharp disagreements happen. Those are not necessarily sin. 
more than likely you or I, in sharp disagreement with one another, are going to sin along the way. And yet we have to recognize that the answer is not to disdain sharp disagreements, but to abhor the sin that may come on during sharp disagreements. And I have to say that because on the whole, as Western people, as people in the United States of America, the Western world has lost the ability to understand or believe that to be true any longer. That you can have a sharp disagreement and you're not hate speech on top of people. That I can disagree with you or you can disagree with me and somehow that doesn't mean that you hate my guts and want me to go to hell. We don't, we don't get that much anymore. There is actually a need, I think, to have sharp disagreements over sin within our marriages, with our children. And on the whole, I'm afraid that as the conservative Christian family, if you will, we value false peace within our homes rather than a willingness to humbly, boldly, clearly, kindly, lovingly, notice how I stated all of that, deal with sin. Sin that if dealt with may cause quite the uproar. The, 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 the few times that I have had folks get really upset with me have been when I confronted their parenting over not dealing with sin to their children. How dare I cause unsettledness within their home? I don't say that as a promoting myself, but to say that the ball was kicked down the field, the sin was not dealt with, and then one day there's no relationship, period, over valuing relationship. But now we're prone to these things. But here, in context to what's going on with Paul and Barnabas, I'm saying we should have sharp disagreements over sin. We have to recognize Paul and Barnabas are having a sharp disagreement, not because of a sin, not because of a doctrinal issue, but rather due to a wise judgment. Paul thinks it's wise to not take John Mark. Barnabas thinks it's wise to take John Mark. And therefore, this separation was not due to sin, though they may be sinning or have sinned in the process of disagreement. In fact, if anything, we must commend Paul and Barnabas because they were able, in spite of their disagreement, to keep the focus on getting the gospel to the world. They haven't forgotten Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the gospel was going to go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. They still have that clearly in focus, though they may be disagreeing with one another. You might be asking the question I was asking this week. Is Paul right or is Barnabas right? Who's wrong here? Who's right? And I think you could make a case for either one, which doesn't solve the question. The church uh, commits Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord. We don't hear anything about their committing Barnabas and John Mark. And yet, John, Mark, and Barnabas go to the island of Cyprus, which is where Paul had first gone in his first missionary journey. Paul and Silas, excuse me, Barnabas and Mark go to the island of Cyprus. Paul and Silas go north through Syria and Sicilia. These are regions starting their second missionary journey. This sharp disagreement, they separate. One goes west, 
the other goes north. And, and we don't hear from Barnabas again. He's not spoken of in Scripture with the exception of one time, and that's Paul mentioning him in the book of 1 Corinthians. So maybe that's the reason why Paul's right, because look, these guys just are never mentioned again. And I'm going to argue now for why I think the other direction. What happened to John Mark? Well, John Mark is a study case of fruitful discipleship and the fruit of God's grace. Because irregardless if there was right, wrong, or sin, God sovereignly intervened here. And he, he does use a man that Paul, at this point in his relationship with John Mark, doesn't, seem, doesn't feel is worthy for this second missionary journey. God sovereignly builds his church through Christ in his way, on his terms, and in his timing. Somehow John Mark gets connected with the Apostle Peter. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13 calls John Mark my son. Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 is where I've already mentioned we know John Mark to be the cousin of Barnabas. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11 all of a sudden Apostle Paul is Apostle Paul. Paul who is rejecting John Mark here. Apostle Paul says John Mark is useful to me. Philemon chapter 1 verse 24, he also mentions Mark as well. Uh, There are very, very few that do not hold to John Mark being the author of the gospel of Mark in your Bible. God sovereignly can, can intervene and he does and he does things that we just cannot understand. And the end of it all, we cannot see but God does. And there is this relationship that was eventually brought back together Mark and Paul, God uses him. You know, I've even thought this week, where's John Mark in the middle of this sharp just agreement? Am I just a piece of meat, boys? I mean, y'all are just arguing about me as if I'm not even here? I, I get it, Paul. I failed the first time. Give me a second chance. Barnabas arguing. Paul disagreeing. They separate. I would have loved to see that first meeting between Paul and John Mark. How did that go? The second time, this time maybe after years of seeing one another, now they see one another and, and Paul actually ends up writing in 2 Timothy. Guess what? I've written about John Mark, what I've told you about him. Remember that? Accept him. He's changed. God's using him. He's been useful to me. I mean, we don't want to get sidetracked, but we've got to say, God delights in, in bringing about second chances. Third, fourth, fifth, fifth, a thousand. We, we have, if we're breathing in and out, the ability to lean upon that grace. And if you find yourself this morning thinking, I've just, I've done, I've done, I've done it wrong too many times. I've failed too many times. I can't get there again. Would you cry out to God for grace and trust him again? Walk in faithful obedience to him. Well, if that's, the, if that's the situation, if you will, it seems as if that's, that's the recipe for uh, the end of the book of Acts, Acts 15. Because how could conflict within the church somehow result in the growth of the church? And yet it does. And we have these first five 
verses of chapter 16, the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And this is my second point. The first was a division or a disagreement. The second is a multiplication. Paul takes Silas and by land goes north. And his first encounter is Lystra, or Derby and Lystra. You can remember in our study, Derby was the turning point on his first missionary journey. He comes back around and he comes by way of sea back to Antioch. This way he goes by land and connects up to Derby and then Lystra. Lystra is an important point to remember because Paul was stoned there. He's walking back into the same place of where he was, he was severely persecuted. Uh, I mentioned when we studied his, his stoning that Timothy was going to be in this place. Who's to say how the Lord brought Timothy to faith? And yet here he is in this place that was persecuting Paul. There he is within Lystra. And Paul meets him. He's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father is a Greek, 2 Timothy 1.5 I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure dwells in you as well. And in the midst of this tension between Paul and Barnabas, the Lord raises up an assistant for Paul that would be of a great help to him, and where we get the pastoral epistles in 1st, 2nd Timothy. His heritage is one who's His mother has raised him in the Jewish faith. His father was a Greek, and thus there was no circumcision. He's well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He has an excellent reputation amidst the church as a young man. And yet it's interesting to note, most would hold to Timothy being a very timid young man. One Paul had to constantly encourage in the faith. One Paul constantly had to bolster up, and yet that was seemed to be the exact weakness of John Mark. Paul wants Timothy to accompany him, verse 3. And so he take him, takes him, circumcises him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul's ministry always went to the Jew first, then the Gentile. So in a new city, he'd always go to the Jewish synagogue first. And he knew that a non-circumcised individual would be a great distraction there. And it's phenomenal to think about this because he's just gotten off a, a, a delivering of a letter from the Jerusalem council to the early Gentile believers that says nothing else is required for salvation. And that's the point here. Circumcision here was not in order to receive Christ, but in order to proclaim Christ not in order to receive Christ but to proclaim Christ we're to never contextualize the gospel what I mean by that I explained it in Sunday school is we're never to take a context let's take China a unique language a unique way to dress ethnicity uh, background All of the things that make up China, heritage. We're not to take the gospel and say, how do we bend it, twist it, shape it to fit that context? Never. The gospel's never to be twisted. And yet, 
as we proclaim the gospel as it is clearly from scripture, the question should be asked, what conformity can I make to my own person in order to best help get that message through with the least inhibitors? Uh, Some of you may have heard of the missionaries Gladys Elward and Jonathan Goforth. They were both missionaries to China. Jonathan Goforth was from Canada, uh, as white as white can get, didn't have dark hair. He would dye his hair. He grew his hair long. He styled it in the way that the Chinese men would. He'd put on their natural dress. Alice, uh, Gladys Alward did the same thing. She, she dressed in a way that would be as least inhibiting to the proclamation of the gospel as possible. It's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's wise to know the inhibitors to the gospel within a particular context in order to keep the main things central and the non-essentials out of focus and if necessary, conform the person. Hey, I want to get the gospel to the Jew. If I take Timothy in here, this is going to be something that's going to be a stumbling block for them. This has nothing to do with salvation, Timothy. This is a way for us to know their language better. And Timothy lovingly goes along. Verse 4. You'll see what happened. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. This is their work. They're traveling. They're testifying to the Jewish council regarding Gentile believers. They're delivering to them the decrees. What was the decree? The decree was, if you remember from last week, God has provided Christ and Him alone to save sinners. It is, it is God alone that builds the church, Gentile believers, is their decree. It is on the grounds of Christ alone. You need nothing else. My faith has found a resting place, the hymn says, not in device or creed, but upon Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, if you've been saved by the grace of God, you are a wonderful cog in the grand wheel of God's glory. The only picture that could come to mind this morning was the giant clock, Big Bend. And, and there, are, there are gears in there that go round and round and round and round and round, all for the sake of a number of other gears down the line to move one big giant gear one click. And then this little guy over here, one click. And at times, I think this is exactly what it feels like to be in the church. It feels like what it is to be a pastor at times. You run around a hundred times in a row going, I'm getting dizzy doing this. What's the point, God? How are you going to use me? And then you see this click. Oh, that's what he's doing. It's not about me. And if he wants me to run a hundred times in a circle so that somebody else can move one click, amen to that. May he be glorified. God builds the church in his timing. His interest for us is faithful obedience to his plan in his ways. We have got to at times in the middle of what seems to be the rat race gain the proper perspective that it is God who is building his church. He has determined to use us. But it's not about us. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know if I'm saved. 
I'm, I, whatever that means, I'm not sure I am. And so everything you've just said, what's the point? Have you been saved? Without Christ, I'm not sure how you're going to make it in this world of controversy and disagreement and tension. How are you going to do that? You and I both know, because we're both sinners, if you're here today and unsaved, that there's all sorts of interesting ways we can try to medicate the difficulty of this life in the midst of tension, disagreement, difficulty. And we all know that it only lasts for a short time and then we have to do it all over again. Christ here, the Bible offers Christ as the solution to all of that. He offers here the solution that if you will but believe on Jesus Christ, you will have your sins forgiven. Sin, that which causes the greatest tension that ever could be known, which is God and man unable to be in right relationship with one another because of sin. Christ obliterates that tension, cuts that sin, and makes a way for there to be right relationship between holy God and you, the sinner. And all of a sudden, there's a purpose. The difficulty, the tension, the disagreements, whatever it might be that is in this world, now actually has a purpose to it. It's not just hopeless. There's a recognition that God is sovereign and he can even use all of those difficult things for his glory and a much grander and greater purpose. It's not just pain, but ultimately God gets much gain. Look at the result. You see it there, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The churches were strengthened by the gospel being proclaimed and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. If we were just to take a look at the first five verses, 36 through 41, and the second five verses, I think we'd have to recognize that a separation does not deter God's work of building the church, but instead God sovereignly allows that separation to increase the growth of the church. I've said it a number of times, I'm going to keep saying it because I have to be reminded as much as you do. God sovereignly builds his church through Christ in his way, on his terms, and in his timing. And as I said in the beginning, there's, there's a truth there, there is truth there that can be so encouraging. And yet I said it at the beginning, it's a truth that can be incredibly unsettling. We have prayed for years in this church. I trust you have prayed as well that the Holy Spirit would move in power and save souls in this church and in our community. I think in honesty, though, if we were to, if we were to really to, to boil it down, what we're doing is we're praying for the Holy Spirit to move in power as long as it's really nice and controlled. The Holy Spirit's described in Scripture as a fire. You and I both prefer Warm, nice fires in a fireplace, well-controlled, maybe controlled with the right amount of gas. and You just have this warmth, right? It's all the way I want it to be. In reality, the Holy Spirit, when he moves in power, is much more along the lines of a raging brush fire. And everybody's just trying to get out of the way. Uh, there seems to be no order. It's just taking place. Does God move in an orderly way? Of course he does. 
But it's in a way that is way more powerful than we can possibly comprehend. When God sovereignly builds his church, brothers and sisters, be careful praying about that. I mean, I suggest it. But recognize when he does it, it probably won't be the way we think it's going to happen. Certainly there will be discipleship. Certainly there will be evangelism. But you might end up seeing him build his church with somebody you don't like. You might end up seeing him build the church with your next door neighbor who's hated your guts for years. You might find yourself sitting next to someone in the pew that spoke a disagreeing word to you and you're thinking, not them, God. Yet God sovereignly does this work. We have to recognize something I I want to make clear and that is God loves unity. I'm not suggesting that we should just be looking for sharp disagreements. No, God loves unity. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And yet, at times we have to fight one another for unity. God assigns conflict to those he loves. I've stated that before and I'll state it again this morning. God assigns conflict to those he loves. Everything was going swimming in the garden. Just great. Why did God allow a serpent to enter and tempt Adam? What about David? What about Job, the most righteous of men, the Bible tells us? What about his son, Jesus Christ? Where Christ was assigned the greatest conflict ever. He fought death. He fought hell. He fought Satan. And he won. When disagreement does come, which it will, and when it comes within the church, it will quickly expose our strengths and our weaknesses. And in closing, I want to give you three points of emphasis that I think if we keep in focus during times of peace, make disagreement when it will come easier to handle. Now, that doesn't mean this is a a three-point recipe and if we do it right, it will always spit out the end result. Nope. Sorry, that's not the way it works. But if you're trying to bake a cake and you operate off a recipe for a pie, you'll never get a cake. So at least let's operate off the biblical recipe for how to, in times of peace, keep one another unified. Number one, close community that helps us with our sin. We don't like close community at all times. We certainly don't like people seeing our sin. But the Bible commands us to be in close community and there gives us the grace that the church is to be that which helps us in our sin. When we're in close community with others that are helping us with our sin, it tends to keep the sin that may end up dividing due to unrepentance at bay. Two, close community that prioritizes discipleship. Close community that prioritizes discipleship. Are you in a discipleship-focused relationship? 
Is someone praying with you on a regular basis? Are you reading something with someone? Are you seeking to grow in the faith with another person? In your home, but especially within the church family. And finally, something we all know, but we find it hard to cultivate, which is humility. How is our humility? It's pretty good. And then what happens? Disagreement comes along and we find out our humility is not so good. We have to find ways to cultivate humility. And I think one of them is the way of close community that helps us with our sin. When we are regularly confessing our sin with another brother or sister in the Lord, it's harder to get prideful. I say harder because you can even be proud about confessing your sin. We're really good at sinning. There will be disagreements, maybe even sharp ones. They're going to be in our church. How will we handle them? Can we keep the mission of the church central? Why are you here this morning? What's your mission for this church? Is it the same that's declared from the pulpit? Is it the same that others are holding to? Or do you have your specific own agenda? Careful on that one. God sovereignly builds his church through Christ in his way, on his terms, and in his timing. We're so grateful for that. We're so grateful that the Lord knows those who are his. And he gives those that are his to Christ. Christ saves them by the power of the Spirit. Our call is to be faithfully obedient to that main mission. The mission of the book of Acts that still continues to the uttermost, getting the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And it has reached Fredericksburg, Texas. And it needs to reach the other side of the city. And it needs to go over to Lano. And it needs to go over to Mason. It needs to go south to Kerrville and over to Comfort. It needs to go east. It needs to go west, north, south. That, that, that call, that mission has not changed when Acts 28 finished. It's one that we are called to continue to do. And I trust that as we persevere in that, though there may be disagreements that come, we can trust that ultimately God sovereignly is doing a work and we don't have the final say but he does for his glory let's pray father in heaven we thank you for our time this morning we thank you for your word that ministers to us father we would pray that you would help us as a church we don't have it all right we're prideful people. Uh, we like things the way we want them to be. And yet, Father, we recognize by your grace that we desperately want to see you build your church. We desire more than anything else to see you get glory, even in the midst of our desire at times to be right. I trust by the end of the day for the Christian, what we want to see is you glorified. Father, we pray that you would help us, give us hope when there are disagreements, give us humility. Uh, Father, don't allow us to be deterred from the main thing, which is seeing Jesus Christ glorified and exalted and proclaimed to those that are around us. And Father, we would plead and trust 
that you will, even in the midst of our sin and failures, still see your church through. That though our sin may at times mar the testimony of Christ, it does not have the final say. Father, we thank you for our study in the book of Acts this year. You've gotten us to Acts 16. The many things that we have learned as a church, the many more that are to come. And we thank you for the the study we've had and, and look forward to picking it up in 2020. Father, help us over this Christmas season to be committed to the mission of the book of Acts, to get the word of Christ to all the nations. All for your glory in the precious and holy name of Christ, I pray. Amen.